We're going to be reading the, uh, from Matthew this morning, chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, Light of the World. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand and it gives light to all in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. And maybe it understands why that particular scripture goes with this launch of a brand new series that I am calling Lights Out. Uh, it's going to be involved in a verse-by-verse study of the book of 1 John. That's something that, that I haven't done in a long time uh, since the book of Acts that we launched off into the second year of my ministry here. Uh, but I really think this is a timely series to follow up the Home Depot series Because if we truly are, as Matthew says, going to let our light shine in our neighborhood specifically, what does that look like? Well, it looks like lights out. Well, what does that mean? Well, give me a couple examples. This last week I was involved in some fishing that was lights out. (laughs) No preacher's story. I caught eight bass in under 45 minutes, the largest of which was over three pounds. Can I get an amen? (laughs) Now, for me, that's lights out fishing. For Gail's mom, she celebrated her 90th birthday uh, this last week. And we took her to the boat, one of my favorite places to eat seafood in all of Kerrville. And we had some shrimp on her birthday that was lights out. It was great shrimp. Uh, Then I heard some advice this week that was lights out. Uh, Actually, I heard about it a couple of weeks ago. And um, Peggy was the one who told me about it. We were talking about 911 calls. And... (laughs) I had said, well, we had to make a 911 call at the sportsman household because Lauren, when she was about uh, two years old, accidentally swallowed some medication of Gail's that we thought, or at least we thought she did, so we called 911 to find out what do we do next. And as it turns out, she didn't swallow that. We just thought that she had. And Peggy said, well, um, Shona was the one who dialed 911 at our house. And I said, well, well, why? She said, well, she called the dispatcher and said, my mom's trying to get me to eat broccoli. <laughs> said, you're kidding. What the dispatcher say? She said, young lady, you hang this up this minute and go eat your broccoli. <laughs> now that's lights out advice. And when it comes to the church being light in the world, God is not going to settle, listen to me clearly, for anything but lights out. Hide it under a bushel, the church said. No, we're going to let it shine. Never let the devil it out. We're going to let it shine. And not just anyway. I mean, lights out is how we intend to let it shine. Now, 1 John is a letter written by one of the men who wants to help equip us do that. And he can in a very unique way because he saw Jesus of Nazareth. As a matter of fact, He is going to give us an eyewitness account over the next couple of weeks of a person he saw teach, perform miracles, heard him predict his own death and resurrection days before, and then saw it pulled off. And then John saw him alive after the resurrection. Not just for a moment, but for 40 days plus. And the man has some things that he'd like to say to you that might shed some light on a couple of serious subjects for Christians that you can be certain about the identity of your Savior. And then secondly, that you can be certain about the authenticity of your salvation. 
Now, John writes this letter, 1 John, so that you wouldn't have to be in the dark about either of those things. And I've got to tell you, I've struggled with both of those things in my lifetime, even as a minister. I know we live in an age where ambiguity is almost in style, where it's almost vogue not to have a strong conviction about anything. But somebody forgot to tell John that. Because 36 times in five chapters, he is going to write with bold certainty about what, listen to me, we know. What we know, not what we think, not what we suppose, not what we hope, but what we know. And over the next couple of weeks, I want you to see a man who is writing in black and white to a church that literally is in a gray funk. A church that's in need of some light in the midst of some very dark thinking. The problem? They're being unsettled by a group of people who later were known as the Gnostics, whose teachings John actually labels as deceitful and false and will go as far as to call them anti-Christian. Read his word in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6. I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Now that's pretty strong medicine. That's strong indictment because John's readers are struggling with some things that some from the inside are trying to teach them that John never taught them. And they don't know which way is up about that. Now these aren't people from the outside trying to pollute their minds. They're people from the inside who are doing so. And John's going to say this in 2.19. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now the group that he's writing this about are a group of people who are claiming to be enlightened, more so than even the apostles. They're saying they've received some heavenly knowledge, some revelation that, that the rest of the church hasn't. And it's, it's leaving those inside the church feeling like, well, maybe what we've been taught then isn't authentic. Maybe who we are as Christ followers isn't even authentic. They're more enlightened. They've had things revealed to them that we don't. And the Apostle John writes a letter to quiet those fears. Now, he writes a gospel, you know very well, to arouse faith in people who don't know Christ yet. But he specifically writes this letter to assure the faith of those who are followers of Christ. And he starts by warning his church, listen, don't be concerned about these defectors because they never were true believers in the first place. And that's a problem that's happened not only just in John's church, but also happening in every church, in every age. You've seen this happen. People come to Christ and they, they, they start to, to come to church and be a part of our family or, or any church's family. And they start to see people who, who are exhibiting behaviors that just don't seem to line up with Christ. And they're going, wait a minute, I thought this was a church of... Christ. They don't know what to do with that. And there's people who are outside who see us on Monday through Saturday and see behaviors consistently from us and we're going, wait a minute, I, I may not know much about Jesus, but I don't think this behavior lines up with who Jesus is. John says there's always going to be pretenders in the church. We're in the beginning and the truth is right here in this room there are some now. As a matter of fact, there could be one standing in your pulpit, and I mean that sincerely. The church has always had people in it that weren't of it. You may have heard the story about a guy who was behind a lady at the red light. She had taken the pause as a time in which she could put on a little makeup she didn't have time to do before she left the house. She got distracted when the light turned green, and she didn't go as fast as the guy thought she should who was behind her. 
And so he started honking the horn and started pounding up on those, doing gestures that he probably shouldn't have. He gets through the light and all of a sudden he realizes a policeman is pulling him over and so he pulls over. And the policeman comes up to the window and he thinks he's going to give him his license and registration, all that kind of good stuff. And the policeman says, would you please step out of the car? He says, wait a minute, I, I, what did I do? He said, just please step out of the car. I'm going to cuff you and we'll talk about it when he gets in the patrol car. Patrol car? You can't take me to jail because I honked and I screamed at a lady? He said, oh no, sir, I'm not taking you to jail because you did that. He said, I noticed that while you were acting like a jerk back there, there was this Choose Life license plate holder on the back of the car. And there was also this Jesus is large and in charge bumper sticker on the back of the car. And then I saw that fish symbol on the trunk. And the thought occurred to me, that guy can't be a Christian. He must have stole that car. <laughs> First John is written to reveal the difference in Christians who are pretenders and who are the real deal. And John has some illuminating ideas about how to tell the difference. As we take a quick overview of the book this morning, John's going to say there's two things that you can know that a Christian can stand on. Number one is you can be certain of the identity of your Savior. You can be. Now, I know we live in a day in which it's an insult to say someone's dogmatic, but you know what? If you're dogmatic about the right things, that's just fine. As a matter of fact, I hope you are dogmatic about some things in this world. The identity of Jesus is one of those things. John's going to at least try to encourage you. You can be dogmatic about. Because Christianity is more than just another set of beliefs. Christianity is more than just another set of philosophies in this world. God in history has claimed that Jesus of Nazareth was his son. His son. Now you can't be fuzzy about that and be a Christian. There are a lot of people who are nice people. And yet they don't have that place for Jesus Christ in their thinking nor in their lives. The Mormons say Jesus was a created being who later became a God. And that in essence you can do the same thing. That's not what the New Testament says. Jehovah's Witnesses say Jesus is the archangel Michael created by God. He was not the creator of all things. He was part of the created. And that's not what the New Testament says. A Buddhist says that Jesus was a great moralist. A Muslim says that he was a great prophet. Let me read to you what John says. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus Christ is, read the rest with me, the Son of God. That's who overcomes the world. Now in John's day, there was a philosophy, as I mentioned a few moments ago, that has its history all the way back to Plato. And it dominated the ancient world. Again, it's called Gnosticism. And it was basically the idea that everything that you could call matter, anything that you could see or touch, that was evil. Only things of the Spirit were good and of God. And so, you follow that logic to its conclusion. There's no way Jesus could come as a man because this is matter. You can see it and you can touch it. And therefore, there's no way in the world he could have come in the flesh. Here's what John says. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and now is already in the world. Friend, John's going to contend that in his letter, you can be very sure about who Jesus is because God's made it clear. As clear as he can by two proofs. The first is, through the eternal witness of the Holy Spirit, but Christ has blessed you with the Holy Spirit. 
that the Spirit stays in you and you don't need any teachers. The Spirit is truthful and teaches you everything. And so stay one in your heart with Christ just as the Spirit has taught you. Now there's one proof that the Scripture is going to offer up as why you can be certain of the identity of Christ. Because He's left behind the gift of the Holy Spirit. The second thing He's left behind is the teaching and the authenticity of what the apostles saw and hear and reported. I'm going to say it again, what they saw, what they heard, all of that they wrote down and they gave to you. That which was from the beginning. We're going to study this more in depth next week. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at with our hands and they have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life that was revealed and we have seen it and testified to it and announced to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare that to you, that which we have seen and heard, that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy might be complete. John says, I'm not talking about rumors here. We, talk, we saw Him. We touched Him. We ate with Him. And that's what we're passing on to you that you can count on, that you can build your faith on. No one can say come judgment day, well, God, you just didn't give us any clue who Jesus was. John says, not on my watch. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. And we're going to report that to you. And I've left the Spirit with you. And God says, that's enough. He'll go on record as saying that you can know Jesus Christ through those means. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God which he has given us concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this witness in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because he does not believe the testimony that God gave us about his Son. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Last slide. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Very little wiggle room there, right? Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son doesn't have life. That's because God has made sure that no one will ever be in the dark about who Jesus was. Not that he'll hold accountable on the judgment day for that lack of knowledge. So there's two things here. You can be certain of the identity of your Savior. And the next thing that I want you to see this morning very quickly is you can be certain of the authenticity of your salvation. John's going to come back to this over and over in this letter. Here's three tests that he has for us. Here's the first one. It's the doctrinal test. Do you believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God? That's the doctrinal test that John's going to ask of any person who considers himself a follower of Christ. That's why it's the question that we ask when people come to place membership at KCC. Tell us what you, what you know and what you believe about Jesus. Last week when Rebel was baptized... What did we talk about? You were here. Who's Jesus to you? Do you believe that he's the son of God that came and, and died on the cross for you? Yes. Do you believe that he was resurrected? Yes. Are you ready to make him your boss? Yes. It was all about Jesus there. Why? Because it is all about Jesus Christ. In John chapter 4 and verse 13 and through 15, John's going to say, We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. 
And we have seen and testified that the Father sent the Spirit, the Son, to be the Savior of the world. So, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him. And he in God. Paul's even going to go further in his writings and say, there is no way in the world someone can say Jesus is Lord and mean it without the help of the Holy Spirit. So, doctrinal question, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Number two, moral test. Are you walking in the light? That's what John's concerned with, not just that you believe that there is a light. He wants to know that your light's out, that that light's leaking out of you, that, that you're walking in this because belief has to inform behavior or John's going to come back and say, you don't believe. You really don't believe because if you believed, the behavior would follow. That's because Christianity is more than just right information. Christianity is about transformation, not just right information. You've all seen the bumper sticker, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Well, problem is with that, I think it's a great bumper sticker, but it doesn't go far enough. We're not just forgiven. Listen to me, church, we're changed. At least we have the power to change. Here's what John says in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. By this we know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him and doesn't keep his commandments, he's a liar. Whoa, that was strong. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly has the love of God perfected in him. And by this we know we're in him. Whoever says he remains in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now he'll take that one step further in chapter 3, verse 6. He'll say this, now this is a stunner, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. And someone says, whoa. Walked in here to kick some tires about this church. I haven't been back to church in a long while and really hadn't thought much about Jesus in a while. You just lost me there, preach. I mean, I mean, I know a lot, but I know I'm a sinner. I know that. And I know some of your folks, and I know you. You're, you're a sinner too. Yeah, I sin. But listen to what he's saying there. He's not calling for perfection. What he's calling for is progress. If you didn't see that in that text, keep coming back the next couple of weeks because that's what God's going to teach us, is that if we have the, the presence of the Spirit, connection with the church, and walking in His Word then we're going to see in our lifetimes change. Change. That actually in our lifetime, there are things that we used to do and say and that we were becoming. We're not anymore. Those are repugnant to us. But now that we're in Christ, there are some things that we're saying and doing and becoming that are brand new things we never could have done on our own. I love the story that William Barclay tells about a guy in England who worked in a warehouse and he was a, a falling down drunk alcoholic. He was so addicted to booze that he'd get his check every Friday and he'd go buy liquor instead of taking it home for use for the family. To the degree that their home literally had very little furniture in it at all. But this man finally gave his life to Christ and started to change in drastic ways. Well, when that finally spilled over into his work and his, and his fellow employees found out about it, they just started giving him grief. <laughs> you don't really mean that Bible stuff, do you? I mean, everybody knows that that stuff isn't true. He says, what do you mean by not true? He says, well, well, like that story, water to wine. Do you really think that Jesus turned water into wine? Well, this poor fellow was just a brand new Christian. He had not even gotten to that story yet in the study of the New Testament. He said, well, I, I don't know about whether it's true or not, but 
But I do know this. At my house, he's turning beer into furniture. A real Christian is changed and is a changing person. Third test, the social test. Do you love your brother? Love is the single greatest proof of inner change. That's what John's going to try to convince us of. When you find yourself experiencing a deepening love for people in your flesh, people that you really don't want to love, John's going to say, there you go. There's the evidence. Christ is in you. Here's what he says in chapter 314. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anybody who does not love, still dead, remains in death. Wow. You mean John would be bold enough to say, I don't care how much anybody comes to church. I don't care how orthodox they think their faith is. If they're not loving, hard to love people, not of God. That's what he says. In fact, he'll go on to say in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God, and he knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is what? That's who he is. He goes on to say in verse 12, No one's ever seen God. Nobody. But if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is made complete in us. Wow. Now that's lights out. That's lights out. Now, the devil does not want you to know that you have his light. The devil does not want you to know that you can rest in your salvation, that you can know Jesus is who he says he is. But listen to me. God does. God wants you to know. I mean, to your toes, to know Jesus is who he says he is, and he saved you like he promised that he would. He said, but Jimmy, I don't always pass the moral and social test. I don't. I don't always walk in the light as I should. I don't always love my brother as I should. Well, can I say this? Neither do I. Neither do I. And that's why we need to hear the rest of John's letter. A famous preacher, H.I. Ironsides, was with a man one time, and he was sick and about to die. And he said, I'm not ready to die because I don't know if I've been forgiven of all my sins. And Ironside said, suppose an angel appeared to you and said, all your sins are forgiven. Would that help? He said, oh, yeah. He said, well, well, what if just before you die, that same angel came back and said, I'm the devil, and I've been masquerading as an angel just to fool you. Then what? Complete silence. Ironside said, you don't need the word of an angel, and you don't need the word of a devil. What you need is the word of God. And so he took him to 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you can know you have eternal life. Sister, you can know that too. In a sentence, you can know your salvation is authentic, not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus has done. So let me ask you this question as we start to wrap this up. How many of your sins, when Jesus died on the cross, were in the future? All of them, right? Every single one of them. Do you think anything that we've ever done caught God by surprise? Well, sportsmen didn't expect that one from you. No, it's silly. 
Does God have to pretend then that I'm something that I'm not so that he can love me? Again, no. John's going to reveal that God knows all of those things and yet loves me anyway. How could he? Hear the word of the Lord, John 3, 19. This is how we know that we belong to the truth, how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. And man, some of you need some rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God's greater than those hearts. And he knows everything. So dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence when we are before God. God knows my best isn't good enough. And so I'm going to conclude with these last two verses that I think are my favorite verses in all of the book of 1 John. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the entire world. Can't wait to unpack that one some more. But I'll say this morning, Jesus knows that we will not be perfected until we see him face to face. That's what it's going to say in John chapter 3. We will be like him, but it's when he appears. Until then, be satisfied with some progress in the spirit. Not perfection, but progress. But know that there needs to be some progress or there's going to be some doubt that there's been conversion or the spirit in your life. Because if the Spirit is within you, you can't help but change. You can't help but grow. If you're following Christ, if you're putting Him first in your life, you can't help but become like Him. John's going to say that. And he needs to. But it's about Christ in me and what He's doing, not necessarily what I do. I'm going to conclude with this last illustration. Some of you baseball buffs may remember the name of Jim Cobb. He was an all-pro pitcher. But he was also a very, very committed Christian. He was asked one time, how does being a Christian affect your performance on the field? And he responded, well, two weeks ago we were involved in a big game. As a matter of fact, we had to win this game in order to make it into the playoffs. I was on the mound. It was in the ninth inning. I had to get one more batter out. There I was, I remember, with the ball behind my back, just rolling it around in my hand before my next pitch. And I thought... I'm so glad my destiny doesn't depend on this next pitch. As I saw that illustration again this week, I thought, God, I'm so glad that my destiny does not depend upon this next sermon I'm pitching or the next action that I'm pitching for my wife or my friends or my kids. I'm glad that my my salvation doesn't rest in my sufficiency, but rather rests in Christ's sufficiency. Amen, church. And that's what John's going to say in a couple of different ways that I think we all need to hear. I'm glad it doesn't rest on what I do. I'm glad it rests on what he is doing in me. Now, Satan wants you in the dark about a couple of those things, maybe all of them. But John has some bright ideas to share, to try and enlighten us all. I love this. So that you can know that you know Jesus. And I'm going to tell you, when you know that, that's lights out. That's lights out. Father in heaven, we love you. And we want to be lights out of this building, out of what 
people consider a religious place, a holy place. And God, you have told us you make it holy because of your presence among us. And so we welcome you here. And as we hear this word today, it's already a little bit challenging. We're just talking about the introduction. But it's also comforting as we hear the truth about how we can know whether we are authentically yours, authentically adopted, authentically welcomed into the family of God. And God, if you've brought someone here today who, who was on the fence about that, wasn't sure, but they've heard enough now to say, okay, I believe. And I want that belief to, to leak out into being immersed and, and having my sins washed away and, and being declared for myself and everyone that I'm a Christian now. Father, if you've brought a young man, a woman, an old man, an old woman here today to do that, please empower them with your spirit to come and make that confession. Yes, I want to make Jesus my Lord. And, Father, if you brought a brother or sister of mine here today and their light's not been shining, the devil has almost it out. It's been under a bushel of sin. It's been under a bushel of, of busyness and pride. And then wanting to pull it back out again. Would you, would you lead them to one of our shepherds? Either at the back or at the front. So that you can renew that light that you've promised will never go out as long as you're inside a believer. Please, Father, help them be lights out this week. We love you. We need you. And so we're asking in the softest way, in the tenderest way, would you come be ours? Thank you for that. In Jesus' name we praise you. Church, let's stand and let's praise him.